it resonates more than just a little bit. Maybe it resonates a lot. Sometimes life just seems like it gets busier and busier and busier until it just seems to become a blur. And let me tell you, it doesn't slow down as you get older. I know some of you who are here, you're like, I'm single when I get married. Life's going to slow down. I'll sit at home all the time. It doesn't slow down. Your calendar doubles. You have someone else to keep up with. And then you think, but when we have kids, we won't be able to go all over the place. Oh, but you'll have diapers to change and you'll have mouths to feed. And it seems as if time doesn't slow down. And then you're like, but when we're not changing diapers and the kids are older, well, then you'll actually be going to bed before your kids. And the days just seem to get faster and faster and faster. Not to depress you, but I just think that the older we get, that the faster our days move by. And all of this, where does our time go and how do we use our time? Now, some of you may be here today and you may not identify with this at all. I mean, some of you may be here and you may think, I'm managing my time great. I mean, I end the day with a margarita in one hand and I flip a steak in the other and I just sit and watch the sunset and I think of all the hours that I have and how I'm gonna, what new hobbies I'm going to add to my life this week. Anybody there? No. If you are, I want to talk to you afterwards. Because I don't know any of my dreams. Yeah, I don't know anyone like that. Here's the problem with the way in which most of us live our lives. We live our lives, for most of us, on an average day where we just seem to be holding on for dear life, trying to get through it all so we can make it to bed, so we can get a few hours of sleep before it all starts over again. And we call that the American way of life. The problem with that is this. We end up moving in our lives from event to event. And what I found is we get older, we can even move not just from event to event, but literally from season of life to season of life. But we never stop to consider how all of life fits together. If we aren't careful, we'll make our spiritual life just another event. Even disciplined Christians, we can read our Bibles, check. Attend the Sunday gathering, check. Attend a missional community during the week, a family meal, check. And we can even make the spiritual aspects of our lives just another event. And the problem is when we do that, we end up with a busy schedule and a shriveled soul. As we just move from event to event, to event. And we ask the question, what's next? And if I'm stepping on your toes, well, welcome to the club. Because this series is a series in which we're going to talk about a whole set of problems and issues and rhythms that all of us have in life that for those of us who will be teaching throughout the series, we need it as much as you do, okay? And so we are going to be preaching to you guys and preaching to ourselves along the way. Here's where we're headed you can open your Bibles to Psalms 122. If you open your Bible to the middle, you're going to find a songbook that maybe some of you didn't know was actually in the Scriptures. It's called the Book of Psalms. And over the rest of this year, we're going to be looking at the Songs of Ascent. It's 15 Psalms from Psalm 120 through 134. We're not going to look at quite all of them. and We're not going to look at them in order, but we'll look at the majority of them. 
These were songs that the Jewish people would sing three times a year as they made their way up to Jerusalem, as they went at Passover, and as they went at the Day of Atonement, as they celebrated Pentecost. At those three festivals, as they went up to Jerusalem, they would sing these songs. And it seems that these songs, when we begin to read them, we see that they have a kind of centering effect. They create boundaries for living. They help us to integrate our spiritual lives with everything else. And we begin to see, as Chris was mentioning earlier, that we have no problem with worship. The question is, what do we worship? And when do we worship? And the Psalms show us that there's a way that we can live life so that we are worshiping Jesus in all that we do. We'll look at themes like joy and work and happiness and hope and community and blessing and rest. So today, let's begin with Psalm 122. And we're going to begin in the place that we should begin, which is with worship. Psalm 122. The psalmist writes and he says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set. The thrones of the house of David pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Remember, as we go through this genre of Scripture, as we look into the Psalms, we, won't, we will not handle them like we would handle an epistle in which you would teach verse by verse and take the, each word literally. These are the genre of poetry or song. And so we'll be looking for the broader meaning as we go through. In this particular psalm, the writer speaks about worship. He says, I was glad when they said to me, let us, let us go to the house of the Lord. That might be a strange statement for you to hear. Who's glad to go to the house of the Lord? You think, man, if you're a kid and you're here today, I'm like, I'm not glad to be here. I'm just here because mom and dad said, you live under our roof. And as long as you're under our roof, you're going to attend church services with us. But the truth of the matter is that Christians have one thing in common. We have gladness when it comes to our worship. Why else would we be here? Right? Why else would we separate time on a Sunday morning where 80% of the people who are around us are not gathered in a worship service today? It's because Jesus is the center of our lives. And it's because we are glad-hearted. We come here not because Mercy Hill is great or not because there's great music or teaching or programs, but because God is great. And we come to celebrate Him. And so we, we take time in our lives. We create space in order to recognize God for who He is, to be reminded. Let me ask a question. The writer says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. What makes you glad? In the message version, Eugene Peterson translates this verse, my heart leaped for joy. 
What makes your heart leap for joy? What do you dream of at work when you have spare time? Where does your mind wander off to? What makes you glad? That's something that I want us this week to begin to grab hold of and begin to ask ourselves the question, what makes me glad? What do I revel in? What gives me joy? The truth of the matter is for each of us, we worship, oh wow, a hundred different gods throughout the week. I think that oftentimes when we think about idolatry, we think through the Old Testament and we think of a stone or a wooden idol or something that's been crafted by hands. Like the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt and they throw all their, you know, their gold over to Aaron and as Aaron explains back to Moses, oh, I just threw all the gold in the fire and out sprung this metal, this golden calf. And that's what we think of when it comes to idolatry. But the truth of the matter is that, just as Chris mentioned earlier, we may struggle with idolatry and not even realize it when we're watching SEC football. I mean, not to, not to step on toes, but we are. We're going to step on toes throughout this series, even our own. And... You know, as we watch, like, we've got to ask a question. Okay, so Ole Miss and Alabama played yesterday, right? Big rivalry. Like, has my, has my life been ruined over the last two years because Alabama lost? And, and am I on top of the world because Alabama barely squeaked out a win yesterday? Like, if I am, then there's probably a problem. Because, let's be honest, folks, SEC football, not that big of a deal when it comes to the scope of the entire world. But how much does it affect us? How much does it affect our emotions? How much do our relationships and our work affect who we are? When you go to work and come home, if you say, you know what, I no longer have a glad heart. My boss stole it from me. Then, then guess what? Your boss is your God. You've raised your boss up as an idol. If you get home from work and you say, I just need to vent to someone, then you have problems. You have problems with idolatry. And what we begin to see when we begin to measure the gladness of our heart in worship, we begin to see that every action that we do begins to express who and what we worship. Every action. And when we give God room in our lives and space to begin to examine our emotions and how we're feeling, and where our joy is coming from, then all of a sudden we begin to discover the true essence of worship. And we have the opportunity to, be, to begin to root out idols that are in our lives. We think of idolatry oftentimes as, before I was a Christian, I smoked, and I really had a hard time quitting cigarettes, and now I've gotten over that. Or we think of idolatry as, well... When I came to know Christ, I still had a really bad mouth and I cursed a lot and I'm really still working on that. We think of externals. We think of things that are objective. But the truth of the matter is when it comes to idolatry, there are idols that are a hundred a day that crop up throughout our life. And our job through the work of the Holy Spirit is to see those idols torn down as we begin to see where God is at work and how we're worshiping and who we're worshiping. What makes your heart leap for joy? What person or thing, if removed from your life, would cause you to no longer want to live? If you can identify something 
then there is a great chance that that is an idol. What brings you anxiety in your life? Most likely there is idolatry that is attached to that. We move on and there's three points I want to bring out from today. The psalmist begins by saying, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And in verse 2 and 3, we see point 1. Worship gives us a structure for our lives. Worship gives us a structure for our lives. He says, Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together. Worship gives us a structure for our lives. Do you know how important structure is? I want to make this point and then, I, then I'm going to uh, tease out those verses and explain a little bit more about them. But do you know how important structure is within our lives? Boundaries? Like structure and boundaries actually give us the ability to function. Um, actually, it's funny how structure works. If I tell someone just be creative, paint something or make something, it's very difficult to do. Even around the ideas of, of marketing or brainstorming, Structure actually helps you in the creative process. If you're an artist and someone says, I want you to paint a picture for me. I want you to use, actually I want you to use acrylics and I want it to be this subject matter. All of a sudden it aids you in your creativity. Structure is necessary for life. Boundaries are necessary for life. I learned how important structure is. Some of you know this story. You still make fun of me for it. Jerry was kidding me about it this morning. I built a, an office in my backyard. Uh, I actually just helped Peter and Mark Whitby build it. But I dug these post holes in order to make the structure. So I put in three-foot concrete footings. And we said, they told me it's going to be 12 feet wide by 16 feet long. At least that's what the book from the Black & Decker book from Home Depot that I bought said. And it had at least six pages of instructions on how to build a shed. So I figured, we'll be able to figure this out. So I put the post holes in 12 feet wide by 16 feet long. The problem with that was, Peter and I had this idea that we were going to attach the whole structure to those post holes with brackets. Well, we didn't, I didn't really think through how that process would work. And the way in which the joints formed together, they needed some margin. And so putting them at 12 by 16 didn't really work. So we, what we wound up doing was extending the shed another six inches. You say, no big deal. Well, it was a big deal because it wound up costing me extra on plywood and on framing because plywood's four feet long or four feet wide. So I could have bought four sheets per side, but now I had to buy an extra and we had to, and it just created this whole extra process. Why? Because I didn't think through the next step. Because I didn't understand the importance of structure. And the same is true in our lives when it comes to worship, that God has set forth boundaries, if you will, a way in which He calls us to live when it comes to our relationships and our work and our rest and our joy. And we're going to look at some of these throughout the rest of this year. And when we live within that structure, it makes living and life so much easier. But when we get outside of that structure, life becomes very complicated. And it's not that God doesn't forgive. He does. God forgave me of my structural issues on the shed. But there are consequences, 
right? And the same is true in our lives. God offers forgiveness when we step outside of his boundaries and we step outside of his structure. But listen to me, church. God's grace is never an excuse not to repent. God's grace is never an excuse to allow the struggles in our life and the areas in which we have known sin to continue to exist because you need to understand and realize and grab hold of the fact that if you have known sin in your life, there will be consequences. God offers forgiveness, yes, but there are consequences. And there are consequences that sometimes will follow you for the rest of your life. Structure is so important. The psalmist describes uh, what's going on here in Jerusalem. Look at how he talks about the structure of worship. He says, Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. Now, even though the writer has, has been on pilgrimage, he acknowledges that his feet have been standing inside the gates of Jerusalem. I could be wrong about this. I'm not certain. Um, but reading Charles Spurgeon's commentary on this passage, I tend to agree with him in thinking that I don't think the, the writer is to Jerusalem yet. I don't think he means this literally. I think he means it figuratively. I think he means that our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. I think he's walked up. They're seeing Jerusalem in front of them. And I think the writer is saying, even though our feet aren't there yet, as we see that beautiful city, you need to understand that our feet have been standing there, that we've been longing for this place, that we've been worshiping our God whose presence is there in Jerusalem. Remember, the temple wasn't built yet. It was just a tabernacle in which the presence of the Lord dwelt. And as we think about worship and as we think about that idea of where do our feet stand, he says, my feet stand inside the gates of Jerusalem. I'm a worshiper all the time. You see, worship doesn't simply take place when we gather on Sundays. In a biblical worldview, all of life, all of our ordinary life can be and should be lived for God's glory. And there's a lot of people who, who struggle with this idea. They struggle with uh, thinking about how do I live all of my life for God's glory. And a lot of people that, even Christians that we talk to, in the way that we describe that we don't go to church, we are the church, and we gather in missional communities throughout the week, and we covenant together around a particular mission so that we would seek to see people come to know Jesus. A lot of people, as we begin to describe that way of life, a lot of people just say, that's just, that's just too much for me. But it's not if they're a Christian. See, a lot of people would say, we struggle to find time for God. But the truth of the matter is we need to be reminded that all of our time can be lived with Him and for Him. It should be lived with Him and for Him. We don't make time for God. How many, how many times have you, have you said that before? I heard people say, I need to make more time for God. No, number one, you can't make time. You have an, uh, the same amount every day. We all have it. And God's given you enough, by the way. We'll talk more about that throughout this series. I need to be reminded of that. We all have enough. If you don't think you have enough time, that's on you, not on God. And, and secondly, we don't make time for God because it's not like we can say, oh, I'm going to make time for my friends. 
So I'm going to open the door and let you in. No, God's with us all the time, whether we acknowledge him or not. It's why it's so funny when people like, you know, are cursing or saying something and then they find out I'm a pastor and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, don't be offended by me. Be offended by God. He's been here all your life. Like, don't let me offend you. Let God offend you. And we get mixed up with this idea that we worship part of the time. No, we worship all of the time. We are the people of God on mission everywhere we go. And and for the people who would say, well, I don't have time for all of that, then I want to remind you that you're always the church. Always. Just like I'm always a dad. I mean, when can I say... (laughs) I'm sorry, I just don't have time to be a dad right now. School calls, your son's sick. I'm sorry, I'm working. I don't have time to be a dad. No, I'm always a dad, right? And in the same way, we're always the church, which means that as worshipers, our true identity is always being revealed. We're the church all the time. We never cease to be the family of God. And that means that our identity is that we are displayers of God's glory And we're called to be declares of his story. Let me say that again. In everything you do, in all of your life, you are a displayer of God's glory and you are declaring his story. That's what our true identity is. And it happens in all of life. You can't separate the two. Because if you do, if you separate your Christian life from your other life, you'll end up as a fragmented person. Instead of living in light of your identity in which you're saved and you're sanctified and you're a worshiper of Jesus, if you segment your life, you'll begin living for an identity in which you try to earn God's favor. You'll begin doing things in order to get His approval or the approval of others. And if you live a fragmented sort of life in which you have your friends and your work and your hobbies and then your spiritual life, if you live that way, you'll burn out very quickly. And you won't end up here as a worshiper because you will not revel in the joy of Jesus. Instead, you'll try to earn his favor. You will not live in light of what Jesus has done on the cross. You'll live for his approval. And you'll burn out very quickly. Identity is so crucial when it comes to understanding what it means for us to be a worshiper. Elizabeth Elliot said it this way. She said, My house, my kitchen, my desk, my very body are meant to be holy places in this world for the eternal God. Let me say that again. Some of you need to hear this. My house, my kitchen, my desk, my very body are meant to be holy places in this world for the eternal God. I love that. That's not performance. That's not pressure. That's not anxiety or or being impatient, saying, I'll be able to serve God one day. Because whenever you feel those things, you aren't living from a heart of worship. You're living from a heart of trying to serve God or trying to meet His approval or trying to earn His favor. Most of us, in the way that we live our lives, um, I want to draw really quickly an illustration for you of the way that many of us live our lives. I hope that you'll be able to see this. So most of us think about our day, and unfortunately in America, we segment our lives an awful lot. So for most of us, especially men, we, uh, we wake up in the morning and we think about work, and maybe we have to drop the kids off at school, but we're still thinking about work, and then we get to work, and we're just in the work box, right? 
I mean, we're working away and we're working our nine to five. And, and women have a little easier time with this, but men, we're just <laughs> one way highway. And uh, we get in our work box and then we spend actually more of our day at work than we do at home. If you add up the hours, at least our waking hours. And then we, we make it home a little bit of a smaller box. We'll change colors. Is leisure and family. Then we start to try to figure out, okay, leisure and family. With the time that we have, what are we going to do with the family? What are we going to hang out? What's going to go on? But these two boxes, they rarely intersect. And then for most of us, we'll add on to that. We'll add on a piece down here that we call church. And in that church box, you know, it's stuff like, oh yeah, it's Wednesday night. I have missional community. I got to go to the family meal thing. And oh, I didn't read for this week. I need to read. And oh yeah, I'll go to Sunday gathering. I'll even show up early and, and set up or break down. And, and But you know what? These people don't really ever hear about this. And life and family, well, that's separate from this. It's a way that most of us within America think and work. We've become so individualistic. See, it's okay for faith to be a part of this life and family box. So we can pray before meals, but we'd never think about praying before a meeting. We'd never think about praying before lunch with coworkers because faith belongs here, but it doesn't belong here. Oh, wait, there's one box that I left off. I forgot about it. We'll call it, we'll, it'll squeak in right down here and we'll call it mission. Okay? And so that box will be things like, well, maybe the, the church is offering a trip to some foreign country and maybe I'll save up my money and try to go with them. Or, oh, they're having those Saturday work days. Maybe I'll go over there and, and work on that project. But I'm sure not going to tell anybody here about it. And the family, well, I'm not necessarily going to take the family with me, but I'll go and I'll do this mission thing a little bit. That's what most of our lives look like within America and within the church today. But I want to encourage you that life could look very different. When we begin to realize that all of life is worship, then we begin to see that mission happens throughout all of life. That we have this opportunity in which we can begin to see when we rethink evangelism uh, and when we begin to think about it in light of worship, then all of a sudden evangelism is about relationships rather than events and rethinking church as a community rather than an organization. And so all of a sudden work becomes an opportunity where I can be on mission. Family becomes an opportunity where I'm definitely on mission. That's the main people that God's called me to disciple. Church, yes, it interacts with work and family. We can introduce those worlds together and it's okay if they collide. And all of a sudden, ordinary life becomes pastoral and missional if we have gospel intentionality. If we think about all of life as worship, even the very ordinary parts of life. Worship gives us a structure for all of our lives. It gives us a structure for all of our lives. And we've got two quick points, and I honestly don't know if I have time for them. How about if I blow through them? 
The second thing we see is that worship nurtures our relationships. It nurtures our relationships. In verses 3 and 4, Jerusalem built as a city that's bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. I'll just be really quick in, in recognizing that the psalmist is pointing to the tribes who are going up to worship together. That as we come in worship, that it's meant to be all people of all backgrounds and all ethnicities and cultures, and that worship can't be done alone. And so this particular aspect of worship speaks to all those worshipers who are lake worshipers, uh, all those worshipers who are uh, tree stand worshipers. <laughs> Do you know the people I'm talking about? I worship God in my tree stand, brother. I'm from the south. I'm from Alabama. Okay. I do. It's beautiful out there. I worship God more in my tree stand than I do when I come to that church service. I worship God out there on that lake. Boy, there's nothing more beautiful than that sunrise. I worship God. This verse says you can't worship God alone. It says that worship is meant to be done. It says the tribes come together. That worship is meant to be a, a group. That we worship together. It's important to see that that a special time is set aside, that it's dedicated simply to worship. And I, I want to encourage us as a church that as we think about this idea of worship and, and how important it is that we would be together, that we would be intentional, yes, in coming and attending a Sunday gathering, that we'd also be intentional in our coffee groups. I know within my coffee group, just over the last uh, few weeks, it's like, Man, just every time I turn around, we have something that comes up on Thursday evening when we're supposed to meet. And I want to be more intentional that, hey, if something comes up on Thursday evening, then maybe we could get together on Friday evening. But that we are intentional because I need these guys in my life. It's so important that we are regularly with people who know us, people who can help us to discern who and what we're worshiping people who study the Bible with us and, and listen below the surface of our lives to ask the hard questions about what we're believing and the decisions we're making. People who love us enough to step in and say, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping someone else or something else. People who would love us enough to say that. People who would love us enough in those moments when we're depressed to say, you're worshiping yourself. People who would love us enough when we're prideful to look us in the eyes and say, you're worshiping yourself. And they would help to redirect us back toward God. We need relationships. We need people who would offer us accountability. But listen, folks, we also need people who would pastor and shepherd us. I realized several months ago that I needed friends. I, I took some time and... I had kind of known this, and I probably need to spend more time thinking about it and processing exactly what brought me to this point, but I realized that I had tons of acquaintances and very few close friends. Tons of acquaintances and tons of people that I had known very well in the past, but as I began to examine my life, I discovered that I had been so busy in my life that I used friendships. And so even my best and closest of friends were people who simply were in ministry with me at the time. And I didn't make time for people who weren't in ministry with me because who has time for that? And so several months ago, I just slowed down and began to 
try to instinctively develop some relationships with people that were really outside of just the pure ministry context. And uh, Matt and Jared and I started working out on a couple of mornings a week. We got up early and, and just being there together and spending some time together and having a relationship, it's important. Going to a concert, is that today, Matt? Okay, going to a concert this afternoon or this evening with Matt, and he invited me to. Just having that time together, spending time with Chris and doing things that aren't always just work, talking about our families. I realize that I need to develop relationships. You need relationships. You need people who will pastor and shepherd you. That may happen in your coffee groups, it may not. Sometimes those relationships come from the strangest of, of circumstances. Jerry is a guy in my life who pastors me. Jerry Maynard, he's young. He's a lot younger than me. He just got married. He's got a kid on the way. He's like a couple of life stages behind me. But when I had lunch with Jerry last week or two weeks ago, and I walked away and was just almost snickering that this young kid that I discipled a few years ago is now, he's pastoring me. He asked me, how's your family? How can I pray for you? He has a genuine friendship with me. And he texted me the other night and said, Hey, I don't ever want you to feel alone. He texted me at like 1030 at night. It's a little weird. <laughs> I don't want you to ever feel alone. I don't want you to ever feel like, he said, I know this is kind of weird because you're the pastor and all that stuff, but I want you to feel like you have friends. I want you to feel like you can come to me and other people and that you don't have to always be caring for us. I'm so blessed by that relationship that someone... Jerry always says, how can I pray for you? And then he goes, okay. And he actually prays for me every time. And I don't feel the responsibility to then go, okay, now I have to pray for you. Like sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. And it's so refreshing to have friendship in our life. People who support us and love us and care for us. We need that. Worship nurtures our relationships. Now you may hear that and you may say... I don't know how to get there. That, I'm jealous of that kind of relationship. I would encourage you and say, just pursue worship. Pursue Jesus in the Sunday gathering. Pursue people in your missional community. Pursue coffee group. You can't make friendships happen, but you can be a friendly person. And as you are a friendly person, God will bring people around you that you can develop relationship with as you open your life up to them. The last thing is that worship centers our souls. Worship centers our souls. I'll let you read through um, those last five verses on your own. But the big theme that the writer is speaking to here is peace. The word shalom. Peace is one of the richest words in the Bible. It gathers all aspects of wholeness that results from uh, God's will being completed in us. It's the work of God that when complete releases streams of living water in us and pulsates with eternal life. That's the way that Eugene Peterson describes shalom. The point is this. When we worship God and we come to see God for who He is and what He's done, when we understand the structure and the boundaries that He's given us. And when, we, when He puts us in relationship and we have those people who are holding us accountable and who are speaking into our lives, in those moments we find peace because we find God's will. We find the person and the work of God and we pursue Him and Him alone. And it's in those moments where we find great joy. Do you realize that the greatest joy you ever experience is in times of repentance? 
Do you understand that? See, repentance simply means that you have been worshiping a false god. That you've been worshiping a God that brings happiness for a moment, that springs up, and then it, it brings despair in a downward spiral. And you go back to it over and over again, and it overpromises and underdelivers, and it comes in a million different forms and fashions. But when you realize that that's idolatry, and that you're worshiping something that has been created instead of the Creator. And when you turn back toward God, you experience peace. And it can be described in a number of ways. It can be described as happiness, but the Bible describes it as shalom. Peace. That all of your world seems to be right again. And it's not right because the storm's not blowing around you. No, the storm may still be blowing. But you find peace in the midst of the storm because you've anchored your life to the one who is peace. His name is Jesus. And so I want to encourage us as we pursue some pretty difficult topics along the way. I want to encourage us that we would be pilgrims. That we would consider ourselves as people who are on a journey. And people who are looking to Jerusalem, people who are looking to God, but men and women who have come to the understanding that our worship of God affects everything. And that we would begin, maybe even this week, by just pausing long enough to ask God each day, God, what would you have me to do? God, today, what would you have me to do. As you think about your afternoon, you've already thought about lunch and where you're headed and all the list of things that you have planned. Some of you are planning to watch football and do absolutely nothing. Others of you have more things on your to-do list than you could accomplish in a week. What would it be like if you met in the middle and said, God, what would you have me to do? And you simply pursued Him and found your joy in Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You that as we Consider this psalm. These songs that were written of old. God, thank you that you bring structure to our lives. That worship and considering you and who you are and what you've done and how you're active in our lives today. That God, you bring a peace to us. A peace that surpasses all understanding. God, I want to pray for those who are here today who, as they've heard Psalm 122, God, they've recognized areas of idolatry within their hearts, areas in which they need to repent, areas and actions and beliefs that they've struggled with all their life that they need to turn away from that will not be easy. Father, I pray that you would encourage them in their relationships to be open and vulnerable and to ask for help. God, thank you that you've given us the church where we can gather together as a family where we do not have to live alone, where we can worship you, where we can know you, where we can find you. Jesus, it's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. I want to ask you to direct your attention to the screens. Chris mentioned earlier the You Caring site that we put up this week. Last weekend we made a video about the Barksdale House and the project that's going on. I want you to watch the video and then we'll follow up. Here's how you can help. Um, share that most definitely. Uh, if you get on 
Mercy Hill's Facebook page, you'll see a link where you can share. Uh, but the bigger way that you can help is to give. Here's what we would like to ask our church body. Over the last five years, um, we have, as far as I can remember, y'all correct me about this if I'm wrong, never asked this body to give sacrificially. There's never been an, an extra offering that we've looked at and said, we really need to move toward this objective. And, and here's what we're asking. We're asking that everyone would give something. It doesn't matter what the amount of your gift is. You, you, you can go to God about that, but that everyone would seek to be involved. And I even mean the kids. I mean, maybe you want to empty out some of your piggy bank. Maybe you don't have a piggy bank, and maybe you could cut a neighbor's yard and give part of that money uh, towards this project. But we want to ask, and we're going to be asking over the next month, our entire church family to get behind um, this project that we we don't think we're trying to pull it off. We really believe that God has gone before us. And we want to be those first ones who would, who would, in a sense, step in the river and who would begin to give. Here's the thing that's interesting. I think in, in Memphis and in America, this is kind of the way in which ministry oftentimes happens. If you look at the You Caring site, I looked at it just a second ago, and there's been 11 people who have given. There's been 210 people who have shared it. And I think that's the way that ministry many times goes. A lot of people are interested, but very few people really get involved. We want to be a church that's involved. And so we're calling you to get involved financially with your pocketbooks. And that we would learn uh, what Isaiah 1 says, which is that we would learn what it means to care for the poor. That we would learn what it means to care for the orphan that we would learn what it means to care for the widow, and that we would do that with our hearts and the quickest way to your hearts through your pocketbook. So whether you give a, a dollar or a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, it doesn't matter. It's between you and the Lord, but we ask that you do it. All right, thanks so much. I love you guys. God bless you. As you go out, we have a benediction from Psalm 121. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. God bless you guys are dismissed.